Hi, I'm Deborah Hamilton. Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Ten years ago, with my iPhone and a script, I recorded the first episode of the Ultimate Pet Resolution Summit, which chatted with experts about conflicts over animals. Our conversations were intimate, honest, and illustrated how disagreements over animals occur and how those disagreements can reshape people's lives and relationships. In November 2019, I started Why Do Pets Matter, a new podcast that continued these informative discussions. I'm so excited to have you here with me, continuing my exploration into a more meaningful conversation about why pets matter to all of us. My guests and I will share ideas, stories, and experiences straight from the heart, unscripted and holistic. From the bravest moments to the most brokenhearted, we will explore how to resolve disagreements over animals differently. One thing I know for sure is I want to have more meaningful conversations that will help all of us unlock that deeply felt human-animal bond that drives the emotions of conflict. Hi, Deborah Hamilton here, Hamilton Law Mediation, and of course, the Why Do Pets Matter podcast, back with the wonderful Valerie Adams. We're going to continue that conversation we had because conversation is is what needs to be had on these topics and Valerie was so generous with her time last time that I've asked her to come back and give us some more input and insight into how she navigated this communication highway for helping veterinarians their staff and pet owners understand each other so Valerie thank you so much for coming back you rock you're my hero or a mutual admiration society here. <laughs> for sure. For so sure. you were talking about um, a meeting that you had before we started recording at um, the Fox. Where was it? So in- when we first, yeah, right. in 2008, when we first launched our hospice and uh, palliative care program with Healing Heart Foundation, which was a 501c3, um, we introduced it to our community of, um, of veterinary uh, of veterinarians and veterinary clinics and hospitals in the area and gave them kind of an overview of what a program like that can offer people. Um, and, and it was received incredibly well because of course doctors want to do their best, doctors and staff want to do their best and they do a fantastic job right now with um, emergencies and um, chronic illnesses that are perhaps coming to the end of uh, terminal illnesses. Those types of conversations take such a great deal of time. They're sensitive. Um, in general practice, you know, it's a totally different thing because you have a relationship. So you as the pet family have a relationship with your veterinarian and the staff. And so you already have that level of trust. And so hopefully if you've had a pet that has gone through, say, um, a chronic illness or has been diagnosed and you've been treating a terminal illness, whatever the situation is, you're coming to the end of it. And those conversations about when the time comes should be starting to be looked at. Um, you know, in, in hospice work, we say hospice isn't about dying. It's about living. And that's truth. 
Um, but a little bit as we nudge our way and dip our toe in the water as perhaps a condition is deteriorating is um, a really good idea to start prepping people for when that time comes. And hopefully if it's done skillfully um, in, in a lot of cases, you can actually enrich that relationship as you're getting to the end and um, leave room for things like honoring instead of deep regret or deep guilt, which is quite often, uh, you know, the case. You know, it's such an emotionally charged conversation on both sides because the veterinarian wants to do what's best for the pet. The pet owner wants to do what's best for the pet. And how do you have that conversation? A lot of people say, well, if you know your veterinarian really well, just say, what would you do if it was your dog? And I think that question is so difficult for a veterinarian to answer because A, it isn't their dog. Um, and B, it it's everybody's individual choice. And so this emotionally charged conversation really needs to have some leadership training on how to really handle it um, for both the veterinary and the staff and the client. Absolutely. Um, you know, we talk a lot of times, every time I turn around, I think I'm listening to um, somebody saying, we need to put this in a container. This is in a container. This is in a container. Um, I talk about it as entering that space. And as we love Jill, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, who says, yep. be responsible for the energy you're bringing into that space. Um, those conversations are extremely difficult. Now, I will say, if you have, and hopefully people have a really good working relationship with their primary care doctors, and it's not unusual to have, um, you know, lots of specialists come into play. These allergy dogs, people are on, my brother was on a first name basis with, uh, you know, with his, uh, with his, you know, his, his allergists. So, um, for his dog. Of course, he had a white dog in Florida. What was he thinking, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, 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 you don't think of these things. You think of what would really work for your life, and you don't think of the environment, too, which you should. No, but he was quite committed. <laughs> so it, it was wonderful. But I mean, they had a really good relationship because they saw each other a lot. And if you have that kind of a relationship, and I'm hoping people do with their primary care doctor, that they can start as things are moving right along. These conversations aren't like we don't have them one day, we have them the next. What do you want to do when? Um, that kind of conversation, we, sh we should be nudging our way into those conversations long before we're here now, what do you want to do? Yeah. Um, the problem Erin lies is that, you know, if you're, if you're, if it's an emergency case, you know, this is where. It, it's it an immediate really, conversation, right? If you just find goodness. out. Oh, it's just. But it's that's where so a relationship I think really helps because if your vet comes to you when they're removing the spleen, so to speak, this has happened to me twice. Uh, and they find that the pancreas or the liver are involved in a, a, a serious cancerous condition, you know, you have to have that conversation and you have to trust that, you know, you know, your client well enough 
to have this conversation because they didn't say goodbye to their dog when they went in to have their spleen removed because that's what all that was happening because that's all that showed up. Um, and then you have to call them and make this difficult conversation, have this difficult conversation, make a decision. Neither one is wrong. Um, neither one is right. Uh, you just, you have to have this open conversation. I'm sure you've had that a number of times. Well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking right now of a story where that is completely, um, exa was exactly the case. And it turned out to where we became wonderful friends m many years later. So, you know, a typical standard poodle dog this was that went in for, um, turned out to be hemangiosarcoma. So we are doing surgery in the middle of the night and, um, and I get a call at 10 o'clock at night and said, these folks are going to surgery with this dog. We really think they would benefit from a conversation with you. Um, and I said, sure. Do you want me to call them in the morning? Nope. Tonight will be probably Just the fine. Best. Yeah. So <laughs> within minutes, I was calling them and they were waiting at the phone for me because they had been told that someone would be calling them who had experience in this. And so we ended up bringing this boy into hospice care and he was in hospice care, I think for about a week where we were at the house. And um, I think it was a week, maybe a week and a half. It was a short, short period of time that he was in our care. And um, so coming into that though, these people were armed with information. Information is power. Yep. And I, you know, don't throw tomatoes out there anybody at me don't send me nasty emails but I kind of you know when they would tell me we looked it up on the internet I say I don't have a problem with you looking at things on the internet how about I give you sites to go to though where I know you know the information is accurate and um and I like you to have as much information my job is to give you information my job is not to tell you what to do Right. So right. they went into their hospice knowing um, as much as they possibly could with the possibilities coming up. They were grateful for every time. And when he did bleed out again, and he did because there were um, other organs involved um, where the cancer had spread, and um, we felt that pretty strongly, prepped him again coming up to it. And even at that point in time, when he started bleeding out again, um, I said, we're here. And so it was a question of back to the hospital and getting blood transfusions or because you can change your mind. No, you can change your mind. Um, this, is, this is not a, um, you know, in concrete and stone here. So when it did come time and he did bleed out again, they were given the option. We can go back in, we can have some blood transfusions, but you know, you are already armed with that information and you already know where the end result is going to come. So um, they ended up being just the most incredible advocates because I actually um, did a lecture somewhere and I had a doctor. Oh, it was four days. I'm sorry. I remember it was four days now that he was in our care. Four days. That's that's like nothing. That's like nothing. Um, right. That's like nothing. And so a doctor said to me uh, from the audience, what's four days? And I said, interesting, you should say that because their very words to me were, we wouldn't have traded those four days for anything, anything. 
you couldn't have bought those four days from us. Right. Because so, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a process. Now, either you do it with the bandaid ripped off or you take four days, which is sort of like a bandaid ripped off, but a little less, um, or you, you take a different tack, but having that conversation beforehand, as you said, giving them the information they needed, the correct information they needed, appreciating they went to Dr. Google, and then you said, great, now let's apply it to Fluffy um, and see what would work for Fluffy, and then moving from there. But the, the bottom line is communicating in an effective way so that the veterinarian feels they've given the information to the client that's necessary and the client has received that information in a way they can really assimilate it. Absolutely. And the other thing is, is that to absolutely respect what everybody's different points of view are going to be. Yep. Because I, I, go ahead. four days would not be enough to some people. Four days were everything to this family. So throw assume out the window and um, get into that space where everybody comes with their own baggage, their own reasons, their own little complexities, and honor that. And, and honor if that. your client comes to you and says, you know, what would you do, you know, Dr. Adams, what would you do? Say, you know, I really can't say because I'm navigating this at the same time you are. So let's all find out the information together and, and together we will, you know, make a plan. And that plan is subject to change, as you said. It's not written in stone, but we'll make a plan for the next 24 hours and then the 24 hours after that. Uh, and I, I mean, I had a Hermengio dog who lived six months, nine months, based on holistic and based on, you know, an incredibly committed owner. And he lived every life to the fullest. And, you know, one morning he woke up, gave her a look, and she goes, today's the day. She took him out running um, in the field because he was a field dog as well. Uh, and he did a little bit of running. And of course, you had to go to the obligatory McDonald's, right? Um, and then she, you know, brought him in because that was what she had promised him. She promised him that the day he felt miserable was the day he would let her know that that was the day. And that's I think that skillful and skillful communication is really, um, that's the hallmark of a clinic, yep. is skillful communication and it takes a lot of time and that's one of the hindrances right now is that everybody is so busy and these conversations take a lot of time so perhaps um, for families to make an appointment with your doctor uh, take an appointment slot make an appointment take one of the appointment slots um, dedicated to discussion of what's going on or um, and the vets have to make those slots available because like I was trying to find a vet here in North Carolina, no one would make a spot for conversation available. And I think that is one of the greatest hindrances to building that relationship that veterinarians can have with their clients. And I get it, but if I'm willing to pay the $150 to come in and fill a slot, um, I know there might be a sick dog and I'm willing to wait. If a sick dog comes in at my appointed chit chat time, yes, absolutely. Uh, but then we need to reschedule because I think... And because I'm a pet owner, I think this, the communication between the pet owner and this, the vet is as important as the critical care when we need it. Well, it goes hand in hand. I don't think it's one or, I think it's both. And um, after, you know, working with internal medicine doctors and emergency doctors and oncologists um, and neurologists, um, 
their jobs are are layered, I will say. They're layered jobs. And they usually have people working with them that are also skilled too. So I like to look in terms of a pet care liaison. I like somebody at a facility who has um, a special interest, um, perhaps some varied skills where it comes to this, maybe a little more experience. Um, and dedicate that person maybe to something like that. And, and yeah, absolutely. Because sometimes I'm not the best communicator for someone um, or on some topic or whatever. I'm just not the best. But if I have someone in my team who is, uh, I think the most important piece is to own it. So I'm not really the best person to talk about hospice with you or what's going to happen next. But Valerie, this is what she does. And we have her here in the practice to help people do this. And I would love to set up some time with you and Valerie to talk about it, not just say, well, Valerie does that in our office. No, own it. Own the fact that this is not your magnificence. I have a lot of things that I'm magnificent doing. Um, cleaning is not one of my magnificence and I own it. I own it. And uh, it, it is what it is. I keep things pretty clean, but I'm not sort of like a toothbrush person. My husband's a toothbrush person, which thankfully I married a toothbrush person. But those are the kind of things that I think are more impactful if you own what you aren't willing to do, either because you're not good at it or you just don't want to do it. It's too emotional for you. Like I said, this is an emotional, emotionally energy charged conversation. So if this doesn't make you feel good, either take some courses to figure out how to do it or hire someone who does it well and then say, that's why I hired Valerie. I hired Valerie because she is so much better at having this conversation and having us work better as a team. Well, that's the person that, um, that really should be sitting down with you. These types of conversations, um, we used to do trade shows and animal shows and how powerful they were when people were walking through and seeing what we did and walked as far away as they could, just like they were um, going to catch something. So death and dying is just not, you know, we are all so uncomfortable about it. I don't care if it's with ourselves or if it's with our pets. And so those conversations, and then they, they come with us. <laughs> We are messy. How did you grow up? What are some of the values that you're bringing with you? What's your belief system? How fearful are you about many different things? Maybe you had a really bad experience and you never want to go through that again. Um, there's, there's just so many different dynamics that go into a conversation like that, that to have somebody on your staff you know, that can sit comfortably in that uncomfortableness um, and know how to guide the conversation. That's a real skill. It, it really is. And it's a skill that isn't as appreciated as it should be because it, it's, it's a soft skill, as they say. You know, they use these terms soft skills. And the soft skills of listening um, aren't necessarily as appreciated as the ability to give information sometimes, and I'm sure you've had many experiences where you just needed to listen to the client. Well, first of all, I, I never did like the term soft skill. I feel my hackles kind of raise when that happens. Um, you know, maybe years ago when we first heard the term, and once you get to my age, then you've heard these terms back then, and now they're 
you know, it's kind of like mentor. I'm kind of avoiding mentor because everybody's got a different definition of it. And so it's like, well, what does that really mean to you? Um, so somebody threw a apprentice out at me the other day. I thought of my farrier right away. You know, they usually come with an apprentice. Come with an apprentice. But I think the point is, is that we all have such different definitions for things. So um, if I put six people in a room and ask six people, what does quality of life mean to you? What does suffering mean to you? We may get a whole bunch of different definitions. So when it comes to end of life conversations, it's a lot the same way. Um, some people are going to consider end of life care for their pets when they're taking a couple of last breaths. Some people are going to want to plan on it when they first get a diagnosis of con you know, congenital heart or um, chronic heart disease. So it's what is your definition is going to come into that too. Maybe you are not going to need that much guidance. Maybe you are somebody who really you, you feel you know, um, solid about your belief system. And the, there's not a lot of question in your mind what you're going to do. But more and more, you know, as we, as we move through these societal changes, and I was thinking about it this morning, um, years ago, I said, uh, I was picking up a, a dog or, or a puppy and handing it back. And I said, here, I'll bring you back to mommy. Well, that woman almost chewed my head right off. Yeah. Now, this was probably 30 years ago, but right. I never forgot it. I, I never forgot that. You know, it stayed with me through all my career. <laughs> that person that chewed me out, that's not my kid. I got kids. And she, she did. She read me a good one. It was a teachable moment. And, I and that's how we have to look at it, right? It's, it's a teachable moment. I had a, a colleague, uh, well, a student in one of my programs that said that someone had chewed her out for holding up her finger. I think I might have said this in the last video um, to, while she was listening to her heart and uh, she never did it again. It was a teachable moment and it was totally innocuous. Like, here's your, here's your baby. Totally. <laughs> nothing was meant by it. And then there are other people who really want you to refer to them as their fur babies and, and my children and members of the family and companions. And uh, you're sort of like 87% of the universe now who has uh, pets. Well, I shouldn't say the universe. I think it really is mostly Westernized um, countries uh, and, and, um, nationalities that have made animals be more um, anthropomorphic than, you know, some cultures that hold animals in high esteem, but they recognize that they're animals. Like I love, you know, how um, Indian, uh, Native American um, treat the animals in a way that is, that is historic and, and, but not sleeping in their beds. I think, I think that I might be totally wrong, but you have a close, um, a collaboration with the Native Americans and their animals. And, and so these are, this is a whole different way to look at things. Well, I think now moving forward, that's a really good point because we have seen the changes since 2006 when we first formed the group to go into the reservation. And those of us that um, were originally on the ground there may have made notes that um, it, it, it's just uh, 
it it's flipped on the access because we never used to see small dogs. Now we see small dogs that come in with their coats on when we're having clinics. So it is another affirmation on how we have societal changes with our pets and hospice and palliative care and end of life conversations is going to be, I think, a little more commonplace now because of that position in our society. And that's a good thing. That's, yeah, it's a really I good thing. I celebrate that. I, I absolutely celebrate better communication, open communication, transparency. I, I often um, suggest to veterinarians who are having difficulties uh, with clients or with staff, sit down and take a minute to think about what you bring into the room. And you said this at the beginning, you know, you really have to know what energy you're bringing into the room. And, and not only is that most wonderful thing to note, but you said it earlier too, is the listening part. We're constantly told to listen, listen, listen. Oftentimes what happens is that we're listening with the intent of how we're going to answer. So that pause, while you're listening with your heart instead of the frontal cortex of your brain, can really make a difference to somebody. They can feel you listening in a different way, hopefully. If you're doing some good deep listening, that's what they're picking up from you. And that creates a safety space. That creates a space where somebody feels perhaps a little more comfortable to give you a little more vulnerability. Yeah, to be a little more authentic, to tell you a little bit more that you really need to know, that they're not afraid to share things that might have occurred that might have created the situation they're in, that they're not afraid to speak candidly to you. And wade into that uncomfortable and sit in the uncomfortable. Again, it takes time. It takes somebody that feels um, that they're up for that, that they might even um, like that kind of work where they can actually sit in an intimate circle with somebody. Um, the heart work that I'm doing currently is just a game changer. It's a game changer and you can't hear um, the same again. You can't hear it the same again. And so I don't respond often the same the same as before um, because you're wading into that space. You're standing in that circle with somebody. I love that you said the prefrontal cortex because I often say, well, you're usually lost in your amygdala. Um, and then you hope to get back to your prefrontal cortex because that's more the business, you know, um, as relational kind of part of your brain, as opposed to just spurting out whatever comes out of your mouth from the amygdala, <laughs> right? But, but now I'm going to add the heart, because quite frankly, if you get out of your prefrontal cortex and get into your heart, you're going to hear things that you yeah. won't hear. You know, it's, it's best not to be into your amygdala, absolutely, to be in your prefrontal cortex. But I always say, try to listen to understand what they're saying and ask open-ended questions to get more information, as opposed to just presuming what Valerie means by this. Uh, yeah. Because it, the language she uses, the words she uses may mean something different to you. And she won't mind if you say, tell me more about that. Or what did you mean? Today, I did the same thing. I said, what did you mean by this word, using this word? And they explained it to me. And I said, this is fabulous, because now I understand how you meant that word. And it could have had two or three or four different meanings for me. But because I was 
really listening, really present, listening with my heart. Something didn't sound right to me. And I asked you a question and I know that the veterinarians probably listening to this are going to say, I don't have time to do that. And I, I get it, but, it, but as you said, it becomes second nature. It becomes something that, you know, sort of like diagnostics. There are things that you do now that at the beginning you had to really think about doing. And now it's, it's second nature. And if you just work on the breath, just work on the breath. I mean, if everybody would just take a deep breath, um, we would have so much less conflict, such better conversations because we weren't trying to get to the end of it. I, I don't know how you feel, Valerie. That's, that's my thought. I do. And I used to have a great article um, called The Art of the Pause. Um, pauses and spaces in between conversation is uh, un usually uncomfortable. But if you're in a heavy situation, just that can leave room for a lot to happen. Um, I treasured each and every one of my hospice families. Uh, we entered into a space that was very intimate. We did sharing, which is, um, you know, that is a tricky little area. Um, but if you're comfortable in that space, then it can uh, be a deal breaker for your relationship. And it can be a deal breaker for the family that's looking at end of life. Um, I, I, I'm going through some records right now, and I'm actually looking at some of the patients that we took care of. And I can honestly say, I don't, uh, I'm not aware of it. We kept tether on many of them for quite a while, um, as they knew we would. Uh, and, and some we didn't. I mean, there were a couple that everybody is different. So everybody, everybody wants to do it differently. And we honored that. But the ones that did want to keep a tether, um, and we weren't quite, you know, as far as following through with them, um, we didn't deal with a whole lot of guilt and regret. And I think guilt and regret are one of those things that are just part and parcel so often. Um, guilt and regret. Yep. And I think that if we can navigate through this in um, a companioning way, as Dr. Walfelt will call it companioning, we're not trying to fix. Right. There's no fixing. I can't fix your grief. You can't fix my grief. Um, and loss is loss is loss. I'm not even going to try and compare loss. Um, but if we've walked that together uh, side by side, and um, one of us has been solid feet on the ground while the other one perhaps was lifting up now and again, they didn't feel alone. They were sure. Uh, they were certain, you know, certainly uh, grief stricken and heartbroken and all the things that go along with loss. That can't, how are you going to mitigate that? Yeah. You know, I can't mitigate that for you. You could, you can't mitigate that for me. But if we've done a really good job of walking beside you as well as we know how to do, um, then you're going to walk away incredibly sad but you're going to look back and um, not regret the day or a minute, hopefully, or how it all came down. 
that is that is the perfect way to end this segment. You know, Valerie, we're going to have you back because we have so much more communication conversations to have. Um, but I love you to death. Um, this is Valerie Adams. And until next time, this is Deborah Hamilton, Hamilton Law and Mediation. And of course, this wonderful Why Do Pets Matter podcast. Thanks for coming and joining us today, Valerie. I love you to bits. I love you too. The Why Do Pets Matter podcast drops every Thursday and can be found on whichever platform you find your podcast. Subscribe now, invite your friends, and I cannot wait to have you join me in these conversations.